Welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. Your host is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and after 30 years living in small town Illinois, she has stories to tell. Past cornfields and factories, into the heart of Amish country. There's more here than what meets the eye, far beyond what you think you know. So buckle up and stay tuned. This is Life on the Illinois Prairie. Hi, and welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter, and joining me today is co-owner of LNA Farms near Paris, Illinois, Brian Lau. Brian, thank you for being here on this blustery, cold day. Hi, Wendy. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad that you are because I know you have a wealth of knowledge to share with with folks. Uh, so would you like to share some of your background and your education and wh- how you became a farmer? Yeah, the the fact that I became a farmer is kind of a story in itself because uh, my parents are both school teachers. And while my grandparents had a small farm, which like today they would probably call like a homesteading type farm, um, really didn't have any thoughts of growing up being a farmer. Um, I grew up in a, in a, in Ramsey, Illinois, which is a small town in South Central Illinois. And my grandparents lived here in Paris. And since my mom and dad were both school teachers, we were able to spend the summers over here at my grandparents a lot, come a lot of weekends, you know, spend a lot of time here. So being here in the summers, like for summer jobs, junior high, high school, I worked for neighboring farmers, whether it was baling straw, walking beans, working on hay crews. So I was introduced to, to, to agriculture, like the lifestyle, but I had no, no inclination that I'd ever be become a farmer. Um, being a small town, I was college prep all the way and had a very strong interest in biology that come easy to me. So um, liked all things natural, like things outside. Um, so I went to Eastern Illinois University and got a degree in environmental biology. And as I was kind of preparing for this, uh, looking back through the through the history of what what got us from where we are to where we're at now, I got to thinking that um, there were some really strange, don't know really strange is the right word, but there were some situations that kind of popped up that were unique that put me into this path that I've, where I'm at now. You know, you, I would like to say these are God things. You know, he, he put this into my story that got me where I'm at. And as we, as we go through this, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll kind of, kind of point out what I thought was my, my God moments that, that kind of got me where we're at. Um, I, my wife, uh, Andrea, we college sweethearts. We got married right after college. She's a junior high science teacher at Crestwood here in Paris. I've got two children, uh, Valerie and her husband, Devin. Uh, they give us our first grandson last August, uh, Rowan. And my son, he's a graduated from Eastern a couple of years ago, and he's a meteorologist that works here at Channel 10 in Terre Haute. So they were a big part in this oh. farm story when we got started. The LNA is abbreviations of my name. We were the Lau side. And then my first cousin, Kevin, and his family are, are Gus, uh, last names Augustus. So that's the A. So we started farming mm-hmm. together in 2004. Uh, his wife, Joyce, is a registered nurse, and their oldest daughter, Jessica, she's off in college right now, and their their son, Timothy, he works for a, a farmer here in Edgar County. So this was kind of the core group of people that got us started in LNA. Hmm. Well, I know we, we first met you uh, when we came to visit your Sunflower Farm several years ago. Um, so that's uh, that was how we became acquainted with your operation. But I know there's so much more to it than that. So I know you're going to give us the a timeline of your of the uh, history of of how the farm has evolved. Yeah, like I said, we uh, you know my the fact that we spent so much time over here with my grandparents um, and working with with other farmers. You know, I had some interest in that and. 
1998, Kevin and I were able to purchase 160 acres that at the time we didn't realize realize it. We probably should have known it, but that farm was actually uh, our great, great grandparents started that farm or they they lived on that piece of property. And when I think back to the historical connection of the ground in the area we're farming, it's like I'm carrying on a farming tradition, even though my parents or, or you know, grandparents weren't actively farming at the time, but there was definitely farmers in our historical lineage. Um, my great grandparents had several children and my great grandpa is where we built our house. And that was where I spent most of my summers at on that 10 acre property. It used to be a bigger farm, but some of it had to be sold off, you know, when, when, when there was a death. Um, one of his brothers just moved down to the other end of the road and his farm is here currently where our agritourism is, is headquartered. So when you come to the sunflowers or the pumpkins, that was that brother's farm. So it's kind of neat to think that, you know, we have access to both of these, these farms. The one that we bought in 1998, that's where we kind of house our cattle operation on that 160 acres. And then this other farm that we have access to is where the agritourism, where, where our machine shed, the equipment, all of our um, ag- agritourism activities take place. So when you kind of look back at the history, that's kind of neat that we are continuing um, mm-hmm. this farming tradition. And I hope that, you know, even though right now, my kids don't appear to be interested in anything like that, but you never know what will happen to the future. Maybe it'll be a grandchild or uh, a niece or a nephew that will want to come take over. So that's really kind of important in the story. But probably the, one of the first things that kind of got me off onto the, this, this, this farming thing is the first God thing is when I was a senior at Eastern, uh, my cousin found a salamander here on my grandparents' farm. And since I was the biologist, I was the one that was in the know, they asked me to ID this salamander. And when I looked it up, it it was a Jefferson salamander, which you'd say, okay, that's what's unique about that. But the uniqueness was it had never been documented of being found in Illinois before. So Hmm. I showed it to my herpetology professor and he, he verified, he thought that's what it was. And then the salamander was sent down to Southern Illinois, to the, uh, the one of the specialists on amphibians in the state, and he agreed that it was a Jefferson salamander. So I was planning on just graduating with my bachelor's degree, probably getting some kind of a biology job, and that's where I was headed. But with this salamander popping into my lap, I was able to do research on this salamander and entered the master's program at Eastern. and. While I was taking classes and and doing research, um, you know, I was biology all in. I mean, that salamander project is one of the funnest things that I've probably done. Uh, It was very rewarding. This is what I wanted to do. But I knew to do what I wanted to do, I probably needed a PhD. And I'm like, um, I'm done. I'm tired of school because I got married right out of right out right after we graduated with a bachelor's degree. But I was still working on this salamander project because that was really what I was interested in. And I started working full time with one of the farmers that um, I worked for in the summer. Um, Paul Staley, he's the one that's got Pumpkin Works. I don't know if people are familiar with his agritourism business that he had for 25 plus years. But when we first started, he was a row crop, had a log hog, hog operation. So I got the farming bug while I was still doing my, my schooling. (laughs) And he, Paul knew that I was getting to the point where I was about ready to graduate. And I'd started looking for some jobs and he had an opportunity to pick up some farm ground, an additional 300 acres. And he, he approached me and said, Hey, why don't you farm that ground? Um, You know, put your money behind it. Why don't, why don't you get some financial skin in the game? And I'm like, well, I don't have any equipment. How can I, how can I become a farmer? I, you know, and he's like, well, why don't we, I'll let you use my equipment and I'll trade labor. So it was a, it was a win-win for both of us. So that's kind of how I got started 
in, in farming. I, I, I really liked the lifestyle and I had the opportunity. So I jumped in, but I look back that salamander might've been the reason that got me into farming because I would have probably just got a graduated, would have never went to work for him. And, you know, who knows where I would be right now. Hmm. Well, um, you, we talked about, you mentioned row crops that the traditional way of farming is kind of a come at a crossroads, hadn't it? That unless you have a fantastic amount of land or a, a big corporate farm, it's harder to make, make a living off of a farm, right? And that's why you've had all these diversifications and different ideas that the agritourism that you spoke of. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, early on in that journey, I just kind of saw how cutthroat agriculture is to that extent. You've got neighbors going against neighbors, whether they're talking to the landlord saying, hey, I can farm better than he can, or they might be, you know, more financially set, have a bigger operation where they can pay higher cash rent. And I could just see the writing on the wall because that one initial, the first landlord I got was over or almost half of the acreage that I was farming at the time. And I thought, you know, if something happens to that, I'm not going to become a farmer anymore. I'm going to become a hobby farmer and I'm still going to have to go to town and get a job. So we started kind of thinking of ways that we could, uh, you know, maybe make a living on the ground that we had more control over. And at the time I was reading a magazine called the Stockman Grass Farmer and there was a guy named Joel Salatin that lived out in Virginia. And I really liked the way he wrote his articles. I liked his farming methodology. It was all naturally based. It was, you know, what's best for the animal, what's best for the environment, um, you know, more organic type minded. And it just spoke to me because of my biology degree, my my background, trying how everything's uh, intertwined, ecological, and you know, plants benefit from animals, and animals benefit from plants, and um, we just kind of uh, Kevin and I started talking, and we were like, you know, this is maybe something we could do. We 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 worked together in the summers when we were in high school with Paul. And farming together was something we always kind of talked about, but we just didn't think it was practical because, yeah, you got to you got to generate a lot of acreage to support two families. So in mm -hmm. 2004, we kind of took the leap and created LNA Family Farms. And um, our first offering was our CSA program, which was called Community Supported Agriculture. And at the time, that was kind of a new thing that was just starting to come online and I kind of tell people it's like a magazine subscription. You you purchase your your share before the season starts, um, and and like our CSA runs for fifteen weeks. So whatever vegetables in season for that fifteen week period is what you get. It's beneficial to the farmer because they can get some money up front to help with some of the capital with the, you know, the seed and, and, and whatever materials you need to, to, to grow the crop. And also the customer is taking some of the shared risk with the farmer. So like if we're having a really good year, it's raining, hmm. it's a bountiful crop, they get more in their share. But if hmm. we're having a drought or we get a pest, an insect come in and wipe something out, they might not get as much in that week's share. So it was kind of a, you know, they were taking some of the risk. You were getting some of the reward. And we thought, because Kevin has a great love of vegetables. I mean, that that is his, that's that's what he does now. I mean, that he takes care of him and his wife, take care of the vegetables and the CSA side of the business. And that was our first offering. And so, you know, Joel Salatin, he had chickens, he had cattle and all other, other, other things. Well, we woke up to the fact that we had a lot more vegetables than we could sell through our CSA program. So we started going to farmer's markets. And at the time, mm -hmm. Terre Haute was starting a farmer's market, which at this time in 2004, and at least in this area, farmer's market weren't 
a big thing. They were just kind of getting started. So we were one of the first kind of charter member groups in the Terre Haute Farmers Market when it started. And we still continually go there, even up to today. So once we woke up to the fact that we were sitting in a farmer's market every week, then it's like, we need to add more products. If we're going to sit there to sell vegetables, why don't we add something else? So year two, we added the meat chickens. Mm. And the meat chickens have a, I mean, I don't know if the listeners understand, but they have a really short life cycle. It takes about seven to eight weeks from baby chick to being ready to process. And so we were doing that. And my kids were young at the time and they really liked working with the chickens and, but they would get attached to the chickens and the chickens weren't on the farm that long. So the kids were like, why don't we, why don't we get chickens? Why can't we have chickens in the winter? And we only raise the meat chickens in the summer because our claim to fame is they're pasture raised, they're outside, you know, so the grass needs to be growing and the chicken has to be comfortable living in that outdoor environment. So we had buildings, we had infrastructure that was just sitting there empty. So I got the bright idea that we would start some egg layers. That way the kids could do a little bit more with the chickens. Um, and it would give us another item to sell at farmer's market. And I had the idea that we just let the kids maybe kind of do this on their own. Maybe this would be a start to their college fund or something like that. So I don't remember now if we started with 25 hens or 50 hens, that doesn't really matter. But the next big learning point was, as we woke up to the fact that to sell eggs in Illinois, you have to have an egg license. Off farm. If you sell far eggs off farm, you have to have an egg license. Well, with the egg license, you also get an egg inspector. So once the, once the egg inspector showed up to look at our setup and see, you know, how we were doing things, I just made the comment of, you know, this was a project for the kids. And he point blank said, this is not a project for kids that age. So needless to say, I've been packaging, candling, washing eggs ever since. And the kids still helped, but mm -hmm. we didn't really, we just put the money back into the farm as another one of our farm enterprises. So that's kind of how we started the mm -hmm. diversification. It was mainly because we are going to farmer's market. What more can you know we add while we're there? And the next year, or, or maybe not even the next year, but then we, we started expanding our small beef herd that we had, and we started doing grass-fed beef, and then we added pork, and we also do turkeys. So those are the, the kind of the main staples as we're getting started, we're, you know, we're, we're selling meats and vegetables directly to the consumer, either through our CSA program or at farmer's market. So hmm. the next logical thing we thought to help grow customers is that we needed an on-farm store. So we bought some display coolers. We, we, we got access to the building that, that where our agritourism is, is at. And, we, we opened up an on-farm store. The idea was, is let people come out to the farm, see how the vegetables are being raised, see the chickens, how they're being raised, because you can write anything on a website. You can tell anybody what you're doing, but we were saying, come out and see if we're telling you the truth. Come out and, you know, visualize that we are raising <laughs> them the way we say we are. Thinking that they would come, purchase an item, maybe like the item, and let's say they live farther away, say they lived in Mattoon and they're not going to to drive over here every day to get, um, get items. We were going to set up a, a delivery type system. And we, we, we've got to the point where we put an online store on our website where people could order. And, and we had all the pieces of the puzzle. Everything was starting to work out. And, I decided one one winter that it's like we need some more products to, that would bring people out here in the winter because they can't come out and see the chickens, you know, the vegetables in the winter. And I always had a love of feeding birds, uh, black oil sunflower seeds, and I still do. So I just got the wild idea. We would plant three acres of sunflowers and see if we could raise bird seed that we could harvest and sell out of the store. So. 
knew that sunflowers, you don't see many sunflowers in central Illinois. I had no experience with it. None of my mentor farmers in my our community knew anything about raising sunflowers. So like a good entrepreneurial, I jumped in with both feet and I planted three acres, not knowing if I knew anything about raising sunflowers. So we planted these sunflowers <laughs> and when they bloomed, even though it was just three acres, the field was just beautiful. And it was like, man, what can we do to get people? We're already trying to get people to the farm. What can we do with these sunflowers to get people to the farm? So I just got on the the old good old internet and Googled sunflower maize because I knew that corn mazes were really popular in the area because, you know, pumpkin works. And, you know, when I was working with Paul, I helped kind of get pumpkin works up and running. So I knew people would come out for those kind of ventures. So, but I'm thinking sunflowers, they're full of bees. I mean, will this even work? Well, once I Googled it and I found there was a farm in New Jersey that had a sunflower maze, I thought, okay, if they can do it in New Jersey, we can do it in Illinois. I've, I've already proved that I know how to raise them. So <laughs> the next year we jump, we jump in both feet. I plant 10 acres of sunflowers. So I think the sunflowers, planting the sunflowers was the God thing number two. So now it's kind of changed the trajectory of where our farm was, or maybe not changed it, but added to it. So the first year, plant 10 acres, um, know really nothing about when they're going to bloom. Um, so it's kind of hard to advertise you're going to be open to the public because you don't know when they're going to bloom. So we get close, we can tell they're starting to bloom. So we start advertising the best we can that we're open for business. All excited because people were coming. And then the first reality hit, these sunflowers only bloom for 10 days. So needless to say, 10 days, the season was over. You know, so we we run 300 people that first year and we thought, okay, this this is this is all right. You know, people did come. And at the time we were planting sweet corn, about 10 acres of sweet corn. And we had learned that you could stagger plant the sweet corn throughout the summer to extend the season. So I thought, let's just do that with the sunflowers. Next year we can plant 10 acres, but we'll plant five acres, wait 10 days, plant another five acres. And when we did that, we went, and we had a little better idea when they were going to bloom. You still can't say we're going to be open on July 15th or July 20th because it all depends on when you plant them because it's going to take 56 to 60 days from when you plant them to when you start seeing blooms if the weather's kind of normal. Mm-hmm. So year two or year, th- I mean, I guess, yeah, year two after the 300, I think we jumped up to like 3,000 people on that second year. And it's like, oh my, we're on to something here. I said, because it when we did it, we thought we were doing something for our local community, but we were getting people coming in from Chicago, from other states. And it was like, okay, this is a way to get people to the farm. They'll buy our product. They'll see how we're raising our animals. They'll go back to Chicago. We'll start delivering products to Chicago. I mean, that was kind of the mindset early on. That's why we, we thought, okay, this agritourism will work for us. So the next year we plant sunflowers and, and, and it, the, the attendance just keeps increasing. You know, we were getting, you know, 700 people a day coming to this. And it's like now most of the income coming into the farm is heavier from the sunflower side than it is on all the, the meats and the eggs and all the other stuff we're doing that way. So we start continue expanding the sunflower and probably our max year was the first year of COVID. And that was the year that, that the attendance was probably the highest. And it was simply just because people were looking for something to do. We, you know, we, we hesitated planning because at the time the governor was shutting everything down. Um, I knew that they were allowing state parks to be open. And I thought, well, this is kind of like a state park. So we started talking with our health department mm-hmm. and saying, can, you know, can we do this? And they were like, well, since it's outdoors, it's a trail. I think you can do it, but you can't, you can't run your hayride wagons. We can't have people together and it can't really be a maze. It's got to be a path. We don't want people interacting with each other out in the field. 
And hmm. so, so we, we planted one field instead of multiple fields. We planted one field just not to, you know, risk a lot of money if, if for some reason things had changed and we got shut down. But uh, the thing that was neat to me out of that, not over the amount of people, but um, we, the insurance company made us have people sign waivers to come onto the farm. Well, after the season, we kind of went through those waivers because it, it give addresses and stuff like that. And that year alone, we had people come to our farm from 37 out of the 50 states. And oh that was gosh. just an eye opener to us. Like We're a little bitty dinky farm out here in Illinois and Edgar County in the middle of nowhere. And we're getting that kind of response from all over the United States because we're probably six to eight miles as the crow flies north of Interstate 70. So, I mean, you've, we've kind of got a, a nice thoroughfare through from people traveling. And that was just kind of an eye opener that um, this is something that we need to be doing. People are really enjoying coming to this. Hmm. So did you have an issue then with with uh, water hemp one year? Was that last year that you had that issue that these are things that people that come to visit there that we don't think about, that we don't realize how you are at the mercy of nature when you're dealing with these, um, with your sunflower farm? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, the, the part that everybody can see pictures on social media. They can see, they can come out and visit and see, you know, this well-kept up farm and, and it's a lot of work. I mean, from from the from the egg production to uh, uh, even, even the agritourism. It's called agritourism for a reason because it's agricultural based. So all the things that f- affect farmers is going to affect the agritourism business because I mean you've got weather, you've got uh, pressure from diseases or or insects or deer. Um, you know, when we first started we knew that we needed to rotate the sunflowers from different fields. But, you know, I always said this soil is kind of like virgin soil. It's never seen a sunflower before. But the longer we keep doing this, you're going to have to start getting diseases introduced. You're going to start getting predators that uh, hone in on, on the, the, they kind of, you know, the first year they, they didn't know what a sunflower was. Like the deer, they, they didn't seem to bother the sunflowers early on. Now, the deer come out in, in, in groves. I mean, sunflowers are their favorite tree. As soon as the sunflower comes up, they'll start just nipping the top out of it. And uh, deer are probably number one enemy on our farm. Um, you know, whether it's the vegetable garden, whether like I said we used to raise sweet corn, we quit raising sweet corn simply because the deer were eating. You were having to plant like two or three acres of sweet corn just for the deer to get enough for you to harvest. Well, then it got to the point where the cost of raising the sweet corn, you weren't selling enough to, to, to make it a profitable. Um, the deer do that mm. with the sunflowers. A couple years ago, we were going to plant a field for, to be blooming in the fall. So that field wasn't planted till first of July. And I'm kid you not, we had a six acre field and the deer moved in and they literally ate every sunflower plant out of a six acre field. You know, we're talking 140 some thousand plants. They ate every one of them. You'd go by there in the night and it just looked like cattle grazing out there in that field. So, you know, deer definitely uh, a, a big problem for us. Um, like currently, or I guess kind of to, to back up the story a little bit, you know, I'm going to say we peaked at the COVID year, ever since COVID, our sunflower attendance has been dropping, not drastic, but we're, we're on the downward spiral of the, or the, the, the bell shaped curve. Uh, every year the attendance keeps hmm. getting less and less and less, but it's a, like a lot of the, you know, somebody comes up with something successful, then everybody wants to copy it. Um, I honestly believe we were probably the first one to do sunflowers in Illinois maybe even in the Midwest. Well, now about every agritourism farm all over the United States now offer sunflowers was part of their agritourism because they know people come out and see them. And it's a good thing to add. And now 
the people were not getting the crowds from Chicago because they can probably drive past three or four other sunflower fields before they get to us. So we've had to learn mm-hmm. to adapt and we just try to add new things to our offering. And around three years ago, we started offering sunflowers or cut zinnias into the mix. And we planted an acre of zinnias and two acres of cosmos. And this was basically, we weren't really thinking for people to cut them and take home with them. But what the other thing, like I said, was, which is a negative, more of a challenge, the sunflowers only bloom for 10 days. And during that 10 day period, there's a, only about a three or four day period where we consider the sunflowers are at peak bloom. You know, and these are the pictures that everybody's sharing on social media and, and they see them and they just expect that they can come out to the farm any time of the year or even during your season. And that's what they're going to look like. But as, as that sunflower mm-hmm. fully pollinates, it starts to the head bends over, it starts to wilt. So people are coming out and they're expecting to see the sunflower standing up nice and perky. So especially if they drove four hours to get here, they're disappointed. So we thought, well, if we add the zinnias, the cosmos, at least they'll have another pretty field of flowers to look at while they're here. So that we, 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 we tried that. We had pretty good success getting them up and everything. So the next year we decided we were going to really specialize on selling cut flowers. So we had the, the zinnia field. We moved it to a different location because we rotate them with just like we do the sunflowers. And we added cut sunflowers to our mix. We had just been raising a black oil seed variety that we harvest for bird seed. And so we planted a few different varieties of cut sunflowers and people would come out, cut their zinnias, cut their sunflowers and take bouquets home with them. So we've had to kind of adapt and, and add to it. So like last year, I think we were up to uh, 20 different varieties of zinnias and 47 different varieties of cut sunflowers. So, you know, we're always just trying to add new things to try to get people coming back. And what we're doing now is a lot more pleasurable for me than what we did early on when we were getting the bigger crowds, because it just seemed like people were in, out, and you didn't really get a visit with people. Um, Now that we're getting smaller crowds and offering more things, people are staying longer it's more of a relaxed atmosphere. People can kind of come out and enjoy all the beauty of the flowers, seeing the butterflies, seeing the, the bees and all that kind of stuff. So what we're doing now, we couldn't handle the crowds we were getting early on. So, um, you know, the business has got to change is, is you know, things is, is, is you're forced to change. But back to the deer, what we've woke up to that first year we were going to plant cut sunflowers. I woke up to the fact the field was going to be up along the edge of the woods and we were going to plant two acres. And I'm like, if the deer move into that field, they could literally wipe out those high dollar expensive sunflower seeds overnight. So with all my electric fencing background from the cattle and all the other stuff, I'd always heard of a 3d deer fence and we put that around the the sunflowers and thank goodness it kept the deer out but you know you're always having to think Mm. ahead of uh try to stay one step ahead of nature you know one year it'll be weeds a weed issue um this year we had more weed problems because it was so dry the chemicals didn't work and so we did a lot of hand weeding. My wife went out, had some junior high kids come out, did a lot of hand weeding, which took up a lot of time and, and is not easy. Um, the other thing that's a challenge mm-hmm. is the weather. Um, I, I said the sunflowers, it's a 10-day season. So, and obviously the weekends when you get the bigger crowds, well, what if it's a rainy weekend? What if it's uh a high heat warning and the temperatures are over 100 degrees. People don't want to come out and walk around in the middle of an agriculture field when it's that hot. So with the season being so short, the weather can really dictate your atten- your your final attendance. So, you know, that's that's some of the challenges that 
you know, it's not like we're a zoo where we're open 365 days a year. So like if, okay, if it's raining this weekend, we'll just go next weekend or we'll just go, you know, a month from now, the temperatures will be cooler with having a sunflower business when, and they're going to bloom in the heat of the summer. You know, that's some of the variation that we see in, in our attendance. It's not that the people don't want to come. They just say, well, oh, the weather's not right. We're not going to, we're not going to go that way. We see that even in the fall, if, if the temperatures mm-hmm. are too cold or, or if it's weekend. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a small, limited season. So the weather really factors in on whether you're successful or not. So you really have to be open to any opportunity that comes your way. I mean, you have to be be hyper vigilant to your entrepreneurial side, right? That you have to always be looking for that next opportunity. Yeah, I, I feel like that's kind of important that you, you want it to stay fresh so that people um, will come back that's maybe been in the past or just like it so much they come back every year. And But that's also the challenge because it's like you don't want to just go mimic everybody, what everybody else is doing, because then now all these agritourism farms are all cookie cutters. Every, it's all the same. And so then, then mm-hmm. it's location, location, location. And that was one thing that we always thought that potentially helped us is because anybody could plant sunflowers. You could go out there in one of your prairie fields around Mattoon and plant sunflowers. But, you know, we've got woods, we've got hills and hollers, we've got nature trails, we've got other things. We've got, you'd come out and see the chickens if you want, go walk through the gardens. You know, we've got more to offer than just the sunflowers, but the sunflowers are, is the draw. That's what gets people in here. So you've, you've just got to, you got to kind of think of what's trendy, what, what might get people here, but that also comes with a risk because you're trying to do something new that may or may not work, uh, especially if it's something you have to spend some money to 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 implement. You're still at the. It's just like any business. You're you're at the whims of whether you you sell your gadget or if people are going to come to your business. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of risk. There's there's a lot lot of reward to it, but it's it it it's challenging. Oh, I'm sure it must be. And and your faith in God has probably propelled you through this whole thing. I know you've given some examples of when he intervened and took you down one path or another, but that's got to be a big part of being who you are and what you and your partner do and your family. Yeah, I, I think uh, probably as a farmer in any kind, you, you really got to have the faith. Cause I mean, you take this little bitty seed and you stick it in the ground and you, you, you invest thousands of dollars just hoping it's going to rain, hoping a windstorm doesn't come knock it down. Hopefully that you'll have a crop to harvest. So, I mean, and it's, we're not talking small money. We're talking some pretty significant investments that you're depending on stuff that's out of your control. I mean, you know, I might spend, $2,000 on cut sunflower seed and one hailstorm could just wipe that all out and that money's gone. I mean, I've got nothing to sell. Um, you know, corn and soybeans, you've got mm-hmm. some insurance, you can get insurance, you've got some safety nets, but this specialty stuff, you don't have anything. I mean, if I get a hailstorm, mm-hmm. it's done, I'm done. And, and I've already put all the expenses out there. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we saw that last year with the pumpkins we we planted the pumpkins and right after that we got a four inch rain i mean we were in the middle of a drought we delayed our planting because there was no soil moisture to plant the pumpkins we finally got a rain we decided to plant literally a day or two after that we got a four inch rain and pumpkins just cannot handle the the that much Mm. water so i got about a 50 percent stand but the problem was it took it two to three weeks for them to come up so by the time the pumpkins matured, um, it was getting late into the season and the deer just destroyed what we had. I mean, I guess when we used to, when we were planning on having 10 acres, when the deer eat two or three, you don't miss it. But when you've only got five acres and the deer mm-hmm. eat two or three, you really notice it. And, and the rain, the, the rain affected the chemicals. So we had water hemp just solid. I mean, the pumpkin fields, you couldn't even see the pumpkins. So I spent two or three weeks out there with Mm. a weed eater and I was weed eating in between 
the plant push mowing anywhere we could mow just to try to knock them down by doing that it just made it easier for the deer to find them so the deer just started eating on them so i mean you know you have so many challenges that every year is different i mean that's what keeps you going because had a bad year this year maybe next year will be better and that's back to the faith um, I mean, we're really struggling mm-hmm. right now. Um, you know, the last two or three years since COVID has really affected our business. Um, you know, pre-COVID, we could get beef processed with very little um, heads up. Since we live so close to the state line in Indiana, all our meat has to be a USDA inspected. So there's a processing plant south of Terre Haute where we take our, our, our animals, our beef and our pork. and Pre-COVID, literally one week's notice is all I ever had to get them. Somebody picked up the phone, said, hey, I want a half a beef. I could say, yeah, um, let me call my processor, but I can probably have you your beef in your freezer in three to four weeks. Now the wait list is a Hmm. year, two years out. When people call and say, hey, can I get a half a beef? I can say, well, do you want it in two years? And you lose the sale. So Hmm. we have pretty much, we've pretty much just, we haven't had any beef or pork to offer. Um, it just got to be such a rat race. The the the, the processing plants, oh, we'll put you on the list. We'll put you on the list and we'll call you. But they never called. So we still have the cattle. Mm. But now instead of selling them straight to the customer, we're having to sell them through the traditional, through the sale barns. And, you know, and you keep thinking COVID was 2020, mm. 2019. I mean, it, it ought to be better, but it hasn't got better. So we've lost some of the income with not having as much products to sell. Uh, thank goodness the chickens, we can still do good on those because they're, they're processed over there in Arthur uh, at Central Illinois Poultry Processing. And the beauty of them with a chicken mm-hmm. is, is we can take it over in the morning and go pick it up the same day. They don't have to let the chicken hang for three weeks. They don't have, it doesn't take as long to process chickens. So thank goodness the chickens and the eggs there's what's kind of carrying us through. The agritourism helps, but like I said, we're kind of we're losing attendance. So, it, you know, there's there's a financial strain. We're we're having a little bit of trouble, you know, managing some of the debt, and um, and that's back to back to the faith. It's like I feel like what I'm doing is my calling. Um, you know. They always say, what's your calling? You want a job that you're calling. And it's like, they'll say, you know, what's your, what are you passionate at? What do you, what do you do on, with, with your free time? And my free time is, is, you know, I'll be look watching YouTube videos on some flower farmer or, or, or the new hay baler that's out there or, or somebody that's farming naturally. And, 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 and so the passion's there. Um, we get so many comments from people of just thank us for what we're doing and, and how it touches their life. And, you know, we've got one lady that from the very first year we raised sunflowers, she calls this her happy place. And not only does she come out every year, she comes out every different planning and she just walks by herself, spends however long she wants. And she says she's got a lot of issues at home and those sunflowers just mean so much to her. And, and, and we get those mm. compliments or people say, man, those are the best eggs we ever ate. Uh, you know, that chickens, we're, we're sure glad that you raise them more the natural way. But by doing stuff mm-hmm. out of the norm, out of the conventional agriculture side of things, farming against the grain, it cost us more money to do that. You know, it, we, we raise chickens in, in batches of three or four hundred instead of 10,000. And so the costs are different. So it, it's, it's a challenge and, and, and we're struggling through that. You know, in the winter, we shouldn't be, we should be looking forward to what we're doing next year instead of saying, should we shut the business down? I mean, if you look at it just strictly from a business side and you look at the balance sheet at the end of the year, you're like, is this really worth all the work that you're putting into this? And mm-hmm. but then I go back, this is my calling. I said, God, give me the, the ability to work this hard to, um, uh, you know, to, to be able to work without really getting a lot of financial reward. And, 
you know, mm-hmm. you always look at somebody else and say, well, this is your God given strength. And, and I made the comment to Lauren, the, the, the lady that works for us this week. And I said, I, I think it's easier to pick somebody else's strength. I said, what would you say one of my God given talents is? And she come right back and she said, you're a problem solver. And I'm like, man, I really thought of mm-hmm. it like that. But she says, you're, you're fighting everything you do every day. There's a problem and you're solving it. You know, whether it's the deer, you know, what are we going to do to keep the deer from eating this? What are we going to do because this didn't come up? Um, she said, you're, you're, you're trying to solve the problem of why aren't people coming to your farm? So I think that just strengthens that. I think this is my God's calling to do this. But it's like, I feel like we're in the valley. We're, we're down in the valley. We're down in the valley. And you, you, you try to be optimistic saying, okay, this is on God's timing maybe next year you're going to start climbing the Mount Everest. You know, maybe you're going to start going the other mm-hmm. way. So it's like, I don't want to, quit. I don't want to quit saying God doesn't and his plan, you know, we're on his timing, not our own. But then you sit there and think, well, man, mm-hmm. is that the devil? Is that the devil trying to throw a wrench in the plan? And is, you know, he's, he's just trying to make you lose all your financial stability. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. that, that's the challenge that we're, through. And it's, it's just like, you've got to have the faith that what we're doing is I'm doing this for a reason. Maybe one of these years we will have to shut it down. Um, but, but that's not our plan. We're, we're planning on moving forward this year. We've got some, I've got a really neat idea for the sunflowers that I haven't seen done before. Um, don't oh, cool. know. I mean, I haven't researched everybody. I'm not saying it's a yeah, totally unique idea, but there's going to be some financial uh, capital up front to do what I've got in mind. So I'm not going to share with you what I want to do just in case we decide we don't have the money to, to, to pull the trigger this year. But, you know, our goal mm-hmm. is to try to be open, still have the agritourism, still sell the products. Um, got some other things in the works, but just want people to know this, this isn't easy. This, you come out here, you see my big house, you think, Oh, you're, you're financially set. And it's like, <laughs> well, Truth be known, we were to buy that house so that we could continue having this agritourism on this farm. We weren't going to be able to move our agritourism business to another location cheaply. So we thought it was best to spend money on that house. So I'm making two mortgage payments, doing everything I can just to try <sighs> to keep this business open. So I'm not trying to discourage people from doing agritourism because it's a great lifestyle, but I just want people, you know, you see pictures on social media and you see things and, and you think, Oh, I mean, farmers are rich. You know, look at their trucks, look at their tractors, look at all their equipment. Farmers are asset rich, but cash poor. You know, if I decide I'm going to quit and I would sell that house and I would sell this farm ground, money probably wouldn't be an issue for me the rest of my life, but we're trying to keep the farm alive we're trying to let it impact other people's lives. We're opening up our private property for people to come out for whatever enjoyment they get, whether that's entertainment, whether that's something spiritually to them by just being out in nature. And, you know, I want to pass this on to the next generation. I don't want to be the dead end of the farming story of the Staley family. I don't want it to die with me, you know, so there's that faith that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, even though it's a struggle and I think that's that allows me to keep doing what I'm doing. Well, I think it's wonderful. I, I know it's. I want, I'm glad you shared all those challenges and were honest with people. Um, my dad was a farmer. He, he was a grain farmer, and um, I know that most of the time there's there are a lot of loans out that. And he was he was never uh, what anybody would have thought was a wealthy farmer. But that is a misconception so many people have about farmers. Well, Brian, it's just been wonderful for you to, to share your story of faith and about your farm. Um, do you have any contact information or uh, Facebook pages, websites you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, you can you can find us on the website at uh, LAFamilyFarms.com. And we are on Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, you can search LA Family Farms for that. So, um, like I said, social media has been really good to us. Um, I think that's why the sunflower spread so well because people come out, take pictures, they share it. And 
we, we try to keep all of our stuff updated on Facebook, you know, what's going on. So people can come see the flowers when they look their best, not on those days, like I was saying, when the, when the flowers are wilty. So, you know, yeah, we definitely have a web presence and a social media presence. So you can find us there. Feel free to call us, uh, email us, all that contacts on our website. Well, thank you so much, Brian. You've been a pleasure. I know we talked uh, last summer about doing this and, um, I'm glad you found time. I know you're a busy guy. You're a very busy guy. And uh, but wish you the very, very best in what you what your upcoming plan might be for 2024. I'm excited to see that. And we've been there so many times, and I always love the flower patch and the sunflowers. And I'm one of those people that takes those pictures and posts them on Facebook. But uh, the way I, and I, I appreciate the fact that you bring so many pollinators around because that's so important. And uh, it's just such a beautiful place. I encourage everybody to visit this farm, especially when the, when the weather warms up a little bit. I don't think you want too many people out there today. <laughs> like the weather that we have with the, I don't know what the it, wind it, chill it, is, but it's pretty brisk outside today. <laughs> yeah, these temperatures like we've been having this week is when you uh, really wish you didn't have animals. There, there are a lot of extra maintenance, making sure they no, keep them warm and keep them in water. I'm sure that's true too. That's another thing that people like, like me who grew up on a grain farm. You know, we didn't have livestock, so we didn't ha- didn't know how difficult and challenging that was. Well, again, I think that's going to draw our show to a close. And um, Brian, come back and see us sometime if you want to come back on before you start your next venture or before the sunflowers are up. I'd sure love to have you. Yeah, I I, I would be glad to. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, thank you so much, Brian Lau. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. And if you enjoy Life on the Illinois Prairie, I invite you to like my Facebook page. And stay warm, everybody, and be kind. Thanks for listening to Life on the Illinois Prairie, the undercurrents of our American life. If you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe to Life on the Illinois Prairie wherever you get your podcast. Stay tuned for more stories, interviews, and updates. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. Until next time. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.